if I was quicker on my feet or with my mind, I'd write an extra verse on the fly called Take My Conscience and something. Maybe we can work on that at some point. Uh, Part Conscience Part 5, Part 2. Uh, I want to do three and four and five and six, but uh, we're, we're going to finish this morning, Lord willing. That's the plan. Let's keep going. Uh, I think that's the reason really why I don't want to do topical series, because there's always something more to say. I mean, like the next passage in Colossians beckons, so you got to move on, but topical, it's just like, well, and, and, and. So we'll, we'll do this. If there are, there are questions that you hoped would be answered and are not answered, please send those to me. And I'll do my best as quickly as possible, not just answer to send those to you, but maybe we can add that either onto Basecamp or onto the, the email, something that, like, here are the other questions that weren't answered, and here are the answers to those as best we can. So uh, jot those down, send those to me, you can text them to me or, or email me or, or, or whatever. Uh, you can send me a letter, too, in mailboxes still. But the conscience question I want to finish answering today, what we started last week, is how should I relate to fellow Christians when our consciences disagree? How should I relate to fellow, conscience, fellow Christians when our consciences disagree? We discussed the first point of this last week. We're going to cover the other three today. When we, when, not if, when we come across our fellow Christians, especially and even in the same local body where our consciences disagree, we need to begin by understanding our different consciences We relate to fellow Christians when we disagree by trusting the consciences of other believers, by deferring to the consciences of weaker believers, and by learning to charitably disagree with other believers. Those last three, number two, number three, and number four will be, will walk us through the rest of this, and we'll look at a few different passages to do so. The conclusion of last week's sermon, I asked the following question. What is your posture, kind of your default position, toward your fellow believers here at Risen King Church. Um, We could expand that to Christians at large, but kind of like you're not going to love anyone better than you love those closest to you, right? Like, I could say that I love everybody sacrificially, but if I don't love Leanne sacrificially, then if I don't love my kids sacrificially, like, what what does that mean? Like, I love those at a distance, but I won't love those nearest. It doesn't work like that. And so how we treat other Christians in this body is going to then influence how we treat Christians across the world, those that we know, those that we don't know. So that's why we kind of focus on here at Risen King Church, because as the Lord convicts and corrects and builds us up here, it will impact our relationship with other believers at other churches as well. What is your posture, your default position toward your fellow believers here at Risen King Church? Is it one that says, I condemn them for not holding rules that I do? Is it, I look down on them for holding rules that I don't? Or is it, I welcome them despite our differences? And really, we are guilty of each of the first two at different times. And the third is present as well. We're not always on one path. We're everywhere. But the first two are what Paul seeks to correct, especially in Romans chapter 14, bookended by the third. I welcome them despite our differences, which is the Christ-like posture that we're supposed to have toward other believers, seen especially when we disagree. I condemn them for holding rules that, for not holding rules that I do hold that my conscience says is right. They don't do that. Do you see how that fits in with everything that we've said conscience-wise? So instead of condemning them, and hopefully you recognize that was not a good option. (laughs) Those weren't like, all three of those are not like, oh yeah, whatever, condemn, look down, welcome. No, we, we do the first two sinfully. We're called to do the third. We mix that up with different people. Instead of condemning them for not holding rules that I do, I should trust the consciences of other believers. I should, you should, trust the consciences of other believers. 
When you see a fellow Christian doing something you are convinced is wrong, what is your default thought, your, your posture once again, your, your assumption? It makes sense when you see someone doing something that you're convinced is wrong, it makes sense for that thought to be that person is sinning. Like that makes sense. But one of the significant points of this series is for you to check that impulse. Rather than assuming, as, so, as is so easy, oh, God agrees with me on that. They definitely are sinning. But instead, check that impulse, step back, and to question our own conscience and its verdict. Rather than assuming that our conscience is right and that the conscience's verdict is right, we need to step back and ask, is that the case? Why should we assume that our fellow believer is callously engaging in sin against the Lord and against their conscience? Where do we get that as our default assumption? That that would be the first thing that we would assume. What does that say about our trust in the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in our fellow Christians? Instead of condemning our fellow believers, we should trust their consciences. Or perhaps more specifically, not perhaps, more specifically, we should trust the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the consciences of our fellow believers. Instead of condemning, gut reaction, first impulse, they're wrong. Instead of that, we should step back and be like, well, I think they're wrong. Maybe they are. Maybe I am. But I trust that regardless, right or wrong or different, that the Holy Spirit is working in and through their conscience. Trusting the consciences of our fellow believers. Paul provides this instruction in Romans chapter 14, verses 3 through 4. Please open a few passages to turn through. Really want to make sure that you see this in the, in the black and white on your page. Romans chapter 14. <clears throat> we've, we've jumped all over the place. We're going to continue to do so. He says this, let not the one who abstains, actually, oh, we're going to jump over that. Let not, the one, uh, let not the one who eats, there we go. No, what am I doing? I still heard page turning, so let's forget that I made that mistake. Let not the one who abstains, the weak, let them not pass judgment on the one who eats, the strong, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Walk through this passage quickly. There's a command specifically to the weak. Don't pass judgment on the strong. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. This passing judgment is your conscience rendering its verdict on someone else. Remembering the time that we spent unpacking last week, the difference between a biblical command and principle and our personal application of that command. Spent a significant amount of time on those things because those are different. When someone violates your application, you can jump right to thinking you are wrong, you are sinning. But rather than this coming from an actual sinful breaking of God's rule, it could be coming from a breaking of your rule, of your application, and not in violation of God's command or principle. Because, once again, those things are distinct. So in all of this talk about biblical commands and principles versus personal applications, talked about that at length last week, uh, I'm concerned that I wasn't clear on one point uh, because somebody told me I wasn't clear on one point. Not only are personal applications unavoidable, but they are absolutely necessary. And no point did Paul, no point did I, at least if I was following what my notes and what my thinking is, the application of this series is not don't have applications. That's not good. That's not right. That's not possible. You cannot live in this world as a Christian without applying biblical principles or commands. Right? So you do have applications. You must have applications. We, we will always have applications. 
But the hard thinking work comes in recognizing the difference between those two. And an application of something that's right or wrong for me is not the same thing as the command as God has given it. All of God's word is sufficient, but not exhaustive. It doesn't cover smartphones. It speaks to smartphones, sufficiency, without speaking about smartphones. It's not exhaustive. So applications have to happen. They should happen. We should do that. But if we don't recognize the difference between applications and principles or commands, then we won't be able to train our consciences to align them with God's word. And if we aren't able to train and adjust and question our conscience according to God's word, then we won't be able to obey Christ by properly relating to fellow Christians when our consciences disagree. Because if application is scripture, then your conscience is the same as the Holy Spirit in every instance, which I think I've done my best to show biblically is absolutely not the case. Then disobeying your conscience is disobeying God. And then there's no, there's no room for any disagreement because God has spoken in and through you and your conscience. That's not what this passage says. It's not how the Bible presents the church. The problem or, or danger or, or ditch of passing judgment like this applies to someone whose conscience is weak regarding a particular issue. As a refresher, weak does not necessarily mean immature. I gave this definition last week. Weak means a believer with an incorrect, biblically misinformed conscience on a particular issue. So what they think God requires in a particular situation, they're, they're wrong. He doesn't require that. Now, not necessarily, not sinfully wrong. Like we, mistaken doesn't mean sinful. Paul doesn't say, as for those who think that eating meat is wrong, stop it. He doesn't say that to them. He, he teaches through and be like, yeah, you know that meat, it isn't the issue that you think it is. But that's not his primary concern. So for the weak though, those who think something is a big issue when it's not, he speaks this command to them. Believer with an incorrect, biblically misinformed conscience on a particular issue. They believe, they are convinced that God requires something of them that he does not require. Here's the thing. No one, 99% no one, pretty much no one, myself included, myself foremost of all, no one easily recognizes that they are weak on a particular issue. We all naturally think that we are strong and we are right. That's just the default position. Right? Matter of fact, like if you're weak, I kind of, if you're like, oh, I'm weak on this issue. I kind of question, well, well are you? Or are you, you strong but limiting? Like saying like, oh, I'm weak on this issue is like, I, I believe something contrary to what scripture clearly teaches. <laughs> well, then stop believing it. Like, I know that's a little bit simplistic, but that's kind of what it gets to. We all naturally think we are strong and right. Foremost guilt. The Bible says otherwise. It is most likely that we are all both stronger and weaker than other believers on all sorts of issues. Here's one way that we can tell where we are weak. What issues do we pass judgment on others about? where we're quickest to condemn relating to our application of a principle is revealing our weakness on an issue. Now that, again, if you're kind of like, oh, Peter's saying like all sin is okay, just, just go back and listen last week. Okay, because there's that difference between, you remember just the example? There's a difference between flee from sexual immorality and throw away your smartphone. Maybe for you, throwing away your smartphone is the way that you flee immorality. If so, great. But pretending that throw away your smartphone equals for all Christians flee immorality is wrong. That's not a true statement. Nowhere does scripture require that. That can be a great application, but it's not a universal application. And when we're like, oh, I want, to, I want to honor Christ. Christ is flee immorality. I'm going to throw away my smartphone. I do so. I have victory in gratitude to God. Then I start being like, why does, why does he have a smartphone? Why does she have a smartphone? They must not love Jesus. 
They must not love Christ or care about fleeing immorality. It's like, do you see that you, we miss it when we do that? And when our heart, our conscience, rears up to extend and pass verdicts on other people, maybe it's because our conscience is weak. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe you're wrong. What's our default assumption? Which is the first of those two possibilities that we start to consider? When you pass judgment on another believer, you are either right or you are weak. Maybe that's an overstatement. Be careful, though, of automatically assuming either of those options without careful consideration, prayerfully in the context of body relationships. Why not pass judgment? Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. This is Paul's reason for his command. God has welcomed him. When we pass judgment on our fellow Christians for conscience issues, we think we are siding with God against them, rendering his verdict for him. But what is God's verdict on every believer? Is it one of condemnation? Absolutely not. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of our faith in Christ, no Christian stands condemned. We are as righteous in God's sight as Christ is righteous, for we are clothed in and covered by his perfect righteousness. Flowing out from that justification truth, God welcomes imperfect Christians into his presence. could say, raise your hand if you're an imperfect Christian. If God only welcomes perfect Christians into his presence, you're in trouble, right? Christian, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but still here, still breathing, still sinning. How does God welcome imperfect Christians? He welcomes us with love and mercy and grace, sanctified and cleaned by the blood of Christ. None of your works are good enough on their own to offer before the Lord, but yet he tells you to offer a life to him, knowing that it's tainted by your sin, knowing that that taint is covered by the righteousness of Christ. God welcomes imperfect Christians because of Jesus. Do we welcome imperfect Christians because of the blood of Jesus? Or are we better than God? Because I think that's, the te- that's what Paul is setting up here. More often than we'd probably like to admit, a Christian that we believe is wrong from our perspective is not wrong from God's perspective. God has welcomed him. Can we do less? He gives an explanation for this. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Every servant, Christian, every Christian, every servant, answers to his own master, the Lord Jesus Christ, not to other servants. We can start to get nervous when talking about these things. Oh, you don't answer to each other. We answer to the Lord. Oh, isn't that the path toward lawlessness? After all, we should confront, right? Yes, we should keep each other accountable, right? Yes, but what about when the confrontation is rebuffed and the accountability isn't accepted? What about when the concern that you raise to your fellow Christian about the wrong in their life concludes with disagreement and them assuring you that their conscience is clear about this issue. Principle, application, do you see you're wrong? And they're like, I see that path, but that's not an application that I think is required. I really think it is. Okay, I really think that it's not. Then what? Maybe you're right, and they're sinning. Maybe you're wrong, and they're not. But what do we do? This is exactly the scenario when the truth of this passage is most relevant. When you're convinced that they're wrong and won't budge because of your convictions, okay. And they won't budge because of their convictions, which is good. They're following their conscience. This is the scenario here. And in that scenario, you entrust them to their Lord and leave them alone to their conscience. If they are sinning with a clear conscience, God will make it clear to them. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit within us, not from other Christians. 
We are not called to bring conviction into the heart of someone else. Matter of fact, you can't. You cannot sanctify yourself or anybody else. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. And when we try to force that onto other people, force conviction and guilt on those type of things, I think most often we are probably trying to make ourselves the Lord of their conscience. But Christ is the Lord of the conscience, not us. Confront, talk, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Oh, but we're like, oh, that's between you and the Lord. If we leave that, that's really dangerous, right? I mean, what will possibly be the good result from those type of things? If we, if we just allow that servant, that Christian to stand or fall before his master, he's probably going to fall, right? Is that what Paul says? You, you've got the text open, right? And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So if we do this, if we prayerfully entrust one another to the care of our Lord, what will happen? What does Paul say will be the result? Our Lord and Master will make us stand. Christ will uphold us. The Holy Spirit will sanctify us. If we take that fearful step of trusting that the Holy Spirit is the one who will sanctify somebody else instead of us, what will happen? The Holy Spirit will sanctify every believer. Every Christian will persevere in faith and holiness because of God's gracious work in them. Grace to justify us. Grace to sanctify us. Grace to glorify us. So allow me to repeat some other questions I introduced last week. Do you, Christian, want to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord? Do you have a default assumption that your brothers and sisters also answer yes to that question genuinely? When you look around, it's kind of like, are you the only one sitting here who wants to please Jesus? Should we flip that? Like, we know, we are, we know our own sin. It's like, trust the Spirit's work, like a generosity toward other believers, recognizing Christ's work in them. We know our own sinful heart, and yeah, it's there. What's the default? I'll ask you another question. Do you have an unwavering confidence that the God who has justified you is also sanctifying you? That the work that he began, that he is and will carry on to completion at the day of Christ. Do you believe that promise? For you, do you believe it for everyone else that's sitting in this room? Do you have the same confidence regarding God's work in your brothers and sisters? This question was phrased this way by one of the authors that I read. Ask yourself this, do I have a serious respect for the consciences of believers and for the work of the Holy Spirit and Scripture in directing their consciences? Do you have that serious respect for the conscience of other believers and a confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit in them as he is at work in you? Instead of passing judgment, instead of condemning, we are to trust the consciences of other believers. Romans 14, verses 10 to 12, he, he, he kind of gives a reminder on these type of things. A reminder to us about us first and about them, though. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then, verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. I wonder if much of our passing judgment on others for not following our conscience, do you hear that? I wonder if much of our passing judgment condemning others for not following our conscience comes from a longing to deflect the accusations of our consciences onto other people, right? The best way to try to avoid the fact that your conscience is telling you that you're guilty is by telling other people that they're guilty. Maybe we ought to be more concerned with our own judgment, our own accountability to the Lord, than we are with others' accountability to the Lord. Perhaps we look down on other Christians for holding rules that I don't. Instead of looking down on them in such a way, 
I should defer to the consciences of weaker believers. This is actually the majority of Paul's instruction in Romans 14 and 15. Passing judgment, this is why it's most significant. Passing judgment is our natural sinful response with our weak consciences, but it often stops there. The natural sinful response that we have when our conscience is strong is called in the text despising, and it is a sin against the Lord that can also easily cause harm to other believers. Thus, this is the more serious mistake, right? Which is worse, sin that affects just you or a sin that affects you and other people most directly, right? The sin that spreads its poison is worse. Both are bad. That is worse. And that's what happens with this despising. Romans 14, verse 3, the part that I couldn't, couldn't understand why I had skipped. Let not the one who eats strong despise the one who abstains weak. Really, I think the end of the verse, for God has welcomed him. Don't despise because God has not despised. God has welcomed. When your brother or sister in the family of God is seeking to honor the Lord by following their conscience, who are you, who am I, to mock them or despise them? What right do I have, do you have, what right do we have to look down on them and roll our eyes in condescending arrogance? Oh, I can't believe they're still doing that. Despising, looking down. God has welcomed them. Who do we think we are? Who, who do I think I am when, doing, when I do that? Paul goes on to explain the loving obligation of the strong toward the weak. In Romans 14, verse 13 through chapter 15, verse 2. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. Goes on to talk about the meat. He's like, I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean in, it, in itself. It is, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean, weak conscience. For if your brother, weak brother, is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, the confidence that it's not wrong, keep that to yourself. Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. You see, the refrain just repeatedly on this, it's like you're, you're making it about you and you're making it about your freedom and you're making it about the knowledge that you have and the confidence. And even though you're right in your strong position, you're discarding your brother and sister. You're causing them to be grieved. You're causing them to stumble, moving toward them being destroyed for the sake of food what? Where's meat, bacon, or eternal life and joy? I like bacon. Chuck it. What in this life is really worth the soul 
of another believer. He emphasizes the same thing in 1 Corinthians 8. If you want to flip over to that, I'm going to start so you don't have to. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 7 through 13. Not all possess the knowledge that idols are nothing and that meat offered to an idol has been offered to nothing and it's still from God and can be enjoyed. Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother, my sister, to stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother, my sister, my fellow member of the family of God, lest I make them stumble. I will limit the freedom that I know I have for their good. I will defer to the conscience of a weaker believer. I think one of the most likely scenarios for this, maybe not in the first century, because there's probably a Gentile Jewish thing going on in, in Corinth and in Rome that isn't happening here. This is where I see it most relevant, maybe even into my own heart. When someone trains their conscience to adjust it from being weak on a particular issue to being strong about it, that's when the pa this passage is most relevant. Anytime that I figure something out, it could be math, math problem, it could be a woodworking method, it could be a cooking method, it could be something on a lawnmower, it could be anything, how a pen works, particular tricky type of pen. Sometimes pens are tricky, you know, you're not just clicking it, but sometimes like you click it and then you got to pull the, like pull the clip out for the pen to go back in. You know what I'm talking about, right? If you didn't, if you're just sitting there clicking and you're like, this pen's broken. Maybe it's the spring and you just keep doing it. And then somebody else, come, well, you just pull it. Oh, the next time you see somebody clicking the pen, you're like, what an idiot. They don't know how to, they don't know how to operate a pen. Anytime I figure something out, I get this intellectual amnesia and completely forget how much I struggled in trying to understand it in the first place. I can move from I don't get it to why don't you get it so fast, I, it should give me whiplash. The same thing can happen with conscience issues. You can grow up from whatever reason being convinced that something is wrong and then you, through patience, through study of the scriptures, you're like, you know what, that's not wrong. I'm free to do that. And when you come to understand that a rule that you've been living under isn't actually necessary, your, my, tendency will be to revel in your newfound freedom with no consideration for anyone else's conscience. Don't you know? Free in Christ. Get with the program. Strengthen up. Reveling in freedom with no consideration for anyone else's conscience is wrong. It's not the way of Christ. It's not the way of love. We can so quickly move from enjoying freedom in Christ to flaunting freedom in Christ. But we do not live or die to ourselves. Our lives are intertwined with the lives of other people, especially our fellow believers in our church. And we have an obligation to love and care for them. And that means let us decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. But what if I don't get to? Then you don't get to. But it's not a law that says you don't get to. It's you being like, who cares about meat? I care about people. Oh, I wish that was true in me all the time. And I care, just like clutching rights. I get to. No one's going to tell me not to. It's like, 
No one's telling you not to. Matter of fact, freedom is saying like, you know what, this just doesn't matter that much. Paul's like, guys, you're, you're destroying each other over meat. What is meat? The kingdom is not about meat. Whatever those issues are to you, is, is the kingdom of God really about that? Christian liberty or freedom is not merely the freedom to do something. It is the freedom to love others by doing or not doing something. Freedom from it mattering. Freedom to love. On so many conscience issues, we clutch onto things that really don't matter that much and insist on our rights and freedoms. Here it was eating meat. So Paul responds, who cares about eating meat? What is the value of eating meat? in comparison to encouraging someone to walk faithfully with Christ. This is the illustration that my mind keeps going to. If you are not, not a diabetic, is your blood sugar a primary health concern for you? Primary health concern? No. You might be like, well, I should think about my blood sugar. Yeah, it would probably be good for you to think about your blood sugar, but you're probably not, if you're not a diabetic, you're probably not pricking and testing regularly. If you are, wow, I'm not. Maybe once a year if my doctor cares to check. If you are a diabetic, can you eat sweets and carbs without any concern about blood sugar? You can, but, but don't. <laughs> if you live with a diabetic, can you eat sweets and carbs without any concern about blood sugar? Can you, if you live with a diabetic? Yes, of course. Should you eat sweets and carbs without any concern about your diabetic, diabetic loved one's blood sugar? Should you just eat whatever because you are physically free to do so? Why should their physical limitation influence your diet? Should that be what you do? No. In love, you will defer to their health needs and limit your freedom for their sake. This is the same principle that we ought to follow with our fellow Christians in our body. We should love by deferring on issues where we recognize that someone's conscience is weaker than ours. What is deferring? I'd say that it's choosing not to do what we legitimately have the right or the freedom to do. Choosing not to do it. I'm free to say no. I'm not bound to say no. I'm free to say no. Paul says, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. Often when, this, this, uh, when considering this stumbling block principle, as it's been called, we can center on certain issues and their potential for unknowingly causing a brother or sister to sin. I shouldn't have cake to eat at this restaurant tonight. What if there's a diabetic here and the sight of my cake tempts them to indulge? Or what if they see me in the parking lot of this restaurant and assume that I had cake and then they go and eat cake and then they have a blood sugar spike and they go to the hospital? Maybe this is love. Maybe. It can be an application here, but it could also be missing the forest for the trees. Our loving focus should be more specifically on actual brothers and sisters that we certainly do know in our body and building them up in areas where we recognize their conscience is weak, not being concerned about someone generically and overlooking something specifically, but starting first and focusing on the specific areas. I, and the best definition that I have of causing to stumble, because that's important, right? Never put a stumbling block. It's like, well, then what, what does that mean? The best definition of causing to stumble, and I think the clearest application of this stumbling block principle, comes from this passage. From a stronger brother or sister, not just engaging in a behavior that someone else thinks is wrong, but the stronger brother or sister pressuring their weaker brother or sister to act contrary to their own conscience. Taking the principle, waving a Bible verse at them, and then saying, now do this. I'm just not, I'm not sure. I showed you the Bible verse. Do it. You're free in Christ. Don't you, don't you trust justification? Don't you know what the Bible says? Don't you know that it's freedom in Christ and you're being sanctified? Do it. And if they do it before they know that they can do it, you have put a stumbling block in front of them. 
You're causing them not to move upward, but to trip. Where does Paul say anywhere? Just kind of like, man, get them on board. You could be pressuring someone to act contrary to their conscience. That is causing them then to sin. This can happen by asserting our knowledge of what we know is right and insisting that others act as they do. It's the other side of lording over someone's conscience. Kevin DeYoung says, in essence, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, don't flaunt your freedom and don't convince people to go against their conscience because when you do, you only reinforce the idea that the conscience should be ignored. And if they get in a habit of ignoring the conscience, they will end up sinning. So to restate that idea, when we train others to ignore their conscience, we embolden them to sin. And emboldening them to sin will lead to their spiritual destruction. If I'm convinced that something is sin when it's not sin, I'm weak. But if I do it, what is it? It's sin. Because of what my conscience says. And our consciences and following our consciences is not so easy as just like making boxes of weakness and strength. If I think it's wrong to do something in one scenario, and it, but it, even though it's not wrong, and I do it and I sin, then I've just told my, I've just numbed my conscience to then when something comes up that is clear sin, it's going to be easier for me to say, ah, it doesn't matter to follow my conscience. Do you see what I'm saying? If I think it's theft to steal from my neighbor's garden, even though every culture doesn't say that, even the Bible gives opportunities for eating from a neighbor's garden, but if I think it's sin to do that, if I think that's stealing, and I ignore my conscience and go ahead and do it, it will be easier the next time I'm in a grocery store to just pocket the candy bar. And there's no excuse for that. That is theft. Numbing a conscience emboldens us to sin. Numbing, defiling, stumbling leads to that searing, leads to that evil conscience of calling good evil and evil good. Do you want to help a Christian down that path? I hope not. May God forgive us for when we care more about our freedoms than we do about their sanctification and their good. Maybe we should be more concerned about our neighbor's good than about our freedom. Now, when it comes to deferring to the consciences of weaker believers, there are some necessary caveats or maybe we say exceptions a big asterisk. It is possible to go too far with this idea of deferring and for a church to fall into what has been called the tyranny of the weak. Uh, highest uh, common conscience denominators. If you have scruples, you set the rules for everybody and we all have to just sort of give in. If I think red shirts are wrong in the gathering, don't wear red shirts. Sorry for you red, wearing red shirts. It wasn't personal, just something that popped into my mind. It's like, well, I think we should have pews. Pews are more godly than chairs. Well, I guess we can't have any chairs anymore. You know, blue carpet is for the glory of God, but green carpet's not for the glory of God. And so since that bothers me, bothers my conscience, got to have blue carpet, right? Weakest conscience rules and determines everything for everybody else's lives. That's, that's not what this means. That kind of an idea, that tyranny of the weak, is less the strong lovingly deferring to the weak to remove stumbling blocks and to build them up. That's good. And more of easily offended people insisting on their own way. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not saying, it's like, well, you know how some people are easily offended. You got to do what they say. Otherwise, you'll hear about it. Right? Somebody who swings in, I'm offended that you don't wear a tie or a dress to the gathering. I'm offended that you celebrate Christmas that way. I'm offended that you watch that movie with your family. In those instances, I think the person could be claiming the stumbling block principle when in reality they're actually just passing judgment, condemning for what they believe is wrong that you are engaging in. I believe there is a difference between bothering someone's conscience and laying a stumbling block in front of them. Just because someone is offended by your behavior, it doesn't mean that you have caused an offense to them. 
This tyranny of the weak can escalate to people actively promoting their conscience scruples or applications, promoting those as God's requirement for every Christian. Like I said last week, this is dangerous. To take the application and then move it to all Christians must follow this application. There's no deferring to that. They just made that into a gospel issue. Paul was confronted with those opportunities as well. Galatians chapter 2. And yes, if you're counting, this is the third sermon that I could have preached about this. Paul had this to say, when a group of Jews with weak consciences, that's the most generous way of talking about them, a group of Jews with weak consciences tried to require circumcision of Gentile believers. And Paul had this to say to the Galatians, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into or back into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Start laying down Christians must from an application that is not required by God's word. Paul says, "Mm -mm. you will not add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will not rule the church according to your conscience. There is freedom in Christ for every believer. There is freedom from sin and its curse, its punishment, and there is freedom to enjoy all of God's good gifts. Everything, has been, everything created by God is good and to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. First Timothy. There is freedom for that. And and claiming that your or my applications, claiming that my applications have as much authority as God's word and insisting that other Christians must follow my applications is binding their consciences, limiting their freedom, and misrepresenting the gospel. When someone makes Christianity and the gospel about something other than Christ and the gospel, we should not defer to them. We should confront them in order to defend the gospel. This is exactly what Paul did, even to the apostle Peter, right, who had the fastest conscience adjustment on record in Acts chapter 10. I won't eat meat because I'm a good Jew. Go to these Gentile houses. Go into the Gentile houses, right? In one, one vision, received God's revelation and adjusted his conscience and obeyed the Lord, right? Record-breaking. And then... This group came from Jerusalem. I mean, Peter, you're not going to, going through the buffet line at the potluck, you're not going to eat that ham, right? I mean, you are still a good, a good Jew, right? You're not going to sit with those Gentiles. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat the ham. I'm not, I'm not going to sit with the Gentiles. I mean, I'm a Jew. I'm not, I'm not going to sit with Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. We've got to keep our separation from that. And Paul's behind him, semi-sanctified imagination, maybe just imagination, Paul's a few people behind him in line at the potluck, sees Peter forcibly skip over the ham and go sit at the Jewish table. No Gentiles allowed. And Paul, Paul starts fuming. In my mind, Paul just takes like ham steak after ham steak and just starts piling his plate up with it. And he's staring at Peter, just glaring at him. And then he walks over, like sets, sets some of his, like pulls out a chair at the Gentile table and then points over to Peter and says, hey, Peter, Did you see the ham on the plate? I wasn't even going to talk about this passage. How dare you try to force these Gentiles into something different? You gospelless hypocrite. Calls him out publicly, middle of the potluck. It's like, I will not let an apostle or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than that which we have delivered to you. He's not going to defer to that type of a weak conscience because the gospel was at stake for those believers. The conscience book puts it, that's Galatians 2. You can read that passage on your own. The conscience book puts it this way. You need God's wisdom to discern the difference between, one, weak and wavering believers for whom you must flex, or what I call defer, and two, controlling Christians who want to force their scruples on everyone else. You need wisdom to discern that. Why? so that you, like Paul, can preserve the truth of the gospel for the next generation. 
Not passing on a religion of fences and scruples that aren't required in Scripture. Passing on your applications rather than scriptural principles. May God give us wisdom to discern between these various scenarios. Love for both kinds of believers. Humility to recognize where we are truly wrong. And boldness to defend the gospel for other believers. Instead of condemning or looking down. Rather than assuming that someone else is wrong or insisting that I'm right. I should learn to charitably disagree with other believers. You remember the overarching command throughout this passage. Romans 14, 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, what does it say? Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And then the other bookend of this is in chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. With Christ as our model for welcoming. Welcome as Christ has welcomed you. Christ has welcomed, therefore you must welcome. And that, since Christ, then you, reminded me of another passage in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Just as Christ has welcomed you, you are to welcome one another. Is it really an overstep to see that welcoming and loving, God has welcomed you, God has loved you. Christ has welcomed you, Christ has loved you. You are to welcome, you are to love. I don't think it's an overstep to make those type of connections. We are to love as Christ has loved us. So what does this look like? Being Christ-like in our love, charitably, lovingly disagreeing with people means love your neighbor as yourself, which means that when you find out that you were incorrect about something, do you want to have learned that with someone being impatient and rude and insulting to you? Or to find out that you were wrong, would you rather have been treated with patience and kindness and goodness and courtesy? How has Christ treated you? And don't just jump to late ministry, condemnation of Pharisees, because that's not all that Jesus did. Taking one verse, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, I mean, like, yep, that's how he treated everybody that he disagreed with. That's not true. A bruised reed he will not break. Candle. It's starting to snuff out. He's so gentle and lowly, kind to those who are weak that somehow he can touch that wick without smoldering it. Not just smack the candle off the stick. You don't want to be treated with impatience. <laughs> Nobody does. So why would you treat others with impatience? Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment summed up in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. It's the passage, I skipped 11 through 14, but it's the same passage, the same flow. Love your neighbor as yourself in disagreement. And don't quarrel over opinions. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Oh yeah, let's have a relationship so I can point out everywhere that you're wrong. No. Is every discussion that you have with another believer about conscience issues, practical or doctrinal, about which you disagree? Is that the only thing that you have to talk about or that I have to talk about? What about celebrating the most important things where we as Christians agree? What about joyfully worshiping Christ together? Welcome them by not centering on these things. Well, there's times to discuss them. There are times to discuss them. But is it every time? It's not welcoming. It's not what Christ did to his enemies or to his disciples. And use whatever freedom and strength that you have. I'm strong. I'm free. Great. Praise God that you know his truth. That's a blessing. Right? It's not a bad thing to have a strong conscience about something. Right? You have your applications line up better with God's principles and commands. That's great. And if you're so strong, 
Don't use your strength for you. Use your strength for others. Use your strength to build them up, to carry the weak. We who are strong, Romans 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up just like Christ did. Here's the thing. The capacity for charitable disagreement has all but vanished from our culture. Anybody want to disagree with that? Does anybody disagree well these days? No. We are 21st century America is terrible at disagreeing. And we are being led further into that. Charitable disagreement is gone and has been swallowed up by sarcasm, personal attacks, and bitter enmity. But this must not characterize the church. It must not characterize the church. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another by our welcoming. Not because we agree about every particular, but because we love one another despite our disagreements. And we are to be a testimony to a lost world in how we love despite our disagreements. Welcoming one another does not look like accusations or name-calling. Heretic, liberal, legalist, antinomian, Pharisee, fundamentalist, or the dismissive, I guess you just have a weak conscience. Guilty. Like this week. I guess you just have a weak conscience. <sighs> Welcoming one another does not look like misportraying those with whom you disagree. Welcoming one another does not look like ranting against people you disagree with on social media platforms. I mean, that destroys relationship from a distance. You see that, right? No one's ever been convinced that way. We're called to face-to-face, person-to-person interactions, especially when we disagree. And I'm guilty of this. I hate writing something, and I'm like, this is good. And then the Holy Spirit's like, you going to follow it? Do you disagree with someone? Welcome them into your home for coffee, for tea, or a meal, or dessert. Get to know them and discuss your disagreements with humility and love and then pray for one another. What an idea. Oh, if only I would follow that. What does welcoming one another look like? It looks like Christ. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we're going to make sure that we all eat meat. What does Christ-like love look like? In 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. May God lay these things on our hearts that they may transform us and our church for his glory. Disagreements among believers is inevitable. In fact, I am convinced that conscience differences among believers are 
God's perfect sovereign will for his church, for his glory, and for our good. Conscience differences in this church right now are God's perfect sovereign will for his glory and for our good. And how we disagree matters. Will we be Christ-like in our disagreements or will we not? Let's pray. God, our Father, thank you for welcoming us. Thank you, Christ, for leaving the glories of and the freedom of heaven. You were rich. For our sake, you became poor, limited your freedom, became a servant so that we, through your poverty, might become rich. Our freedom was at the expense of your freedom. And in your resurrection, we share in your freedom. May we not, may I not be, may we not be one who comes to a mirror and sees our flaws, our sins, and walks away unchanged. Would you make us doers of the word and not hearers only? And may you be glorified as we seek to honor Christ in how we interact with fellow members of his body. Amen.